Welcome to Lexia Talks, an education podcast that empowers educators with actionable thought leadership content. Each week, we deliver the latest education news, insights, teaching tips, policy analysis, and more. Today's topic is dyslexia, the most common learning disability, affecting up to 15 to 20% of the population. What exactly is this learning difference? How can educators better understand dyslexia? And how can we best meet the needs of these students today? We're joined by two guests, Dr. Suzanne Carricker, Principal Education Content Lead at Lexia Learning, has spent more than 30 years helping teachers learn evidence-based reading methods. She is a recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Dyslexia Association and a certified academic language therapist and qualified instructor. Also with us is Leanne Tolfrey-Mertzloft, Director of Options with Learning, a private tutoring practice for individuals with dyslexia, dysgraphia, and ADHD. She is also on faculty at Albany City Schools, New York, as the Assistive Technology Specialist for Individuals with Disabilities, a past board member of the New York branch of the International Dyslexia Association. She is a Wilson Academy Dyslexia Therapist and a past president and board of education member of the Burnt Hills Boston Lake School District. Welcome, Suzanne and Leanne. Thank you, Tina. Thank you. Yeah, great to have you guys here today. So, Suzanne, let's begin with you. Uh, just a general question. What exactly is dyslexia and what is it not? Further, I'm curious to learn how understanding of it has changed over the last 30 years. Well, Tina, if we think about the goal of reading, it's comprehension. The simple view of reading is a model of reading that proposes that proficient comprehension is the product of decoding and listening comprehension. Both of these components are necessary. Inefficiency in one or both components can lead to non-proficient reading comprehension. You can think of the simple view of reading like a multiplication equation. Anything times zero is zero. We know that dyslexia is a learning disability that involves a difficulty in learning to read that's associated with that decoding, decoding component. And as you mentioned, it may impact 15 to 20% of the population. Students with dyslexia have difficulty translating printed words on a page into their spoken equivalents. And this is in spite of having adequate listening comprehension skills. So their inadequate decoding makes their reading very slow and laborious. The student's cognitive resources are so focused on figuring out how to read the words, they can't focus on the meaning of what they're reading. Mm. Dyslexia is neurobiological in origin. It is present at birth, and it's not related to intelligence. Students with dyslexia have difficulties processing, storing, and retrieving or producing information. The, the difficulties that students have with reading are often unexpected in relation to other cognitive abilities. For example, many times students with dyslexia may demonstrate strong verbal or visual spatial abilities, or they may have notable math or mechanical abilities. 
because of these strengths, students with dyslexia are often admonished to try harder. It seems like a motivation issue. If you have these strengths, why are you not reading better? But we, we know that these students are usually trying really hard. When I was teaching students with dyslexia 30 plus years ago and would mention to someone that I taught students with dyslexia, a very common response was, oh yeah, dyslexia. That's seeing letters or words backwards like B for D or reading was for saw. Dyslexia is not about seeing letters or reading words backwards. I'm happy to say this perception of dyslexia is not as prevalent today as it was 30 years ago, but it still exists. What we know today is that the difficulty with this, the coding that students with dyslexia have is the result in a deficit of the phonological component of language. So this deficit will affect their decoding as well as their spelling. So these are students that may have difficulty detecting or discriminating sounds in spoken words. So they misread words. Oftentimes they'll mispronounce words. When they're spelling and sounding out a word, they may have difficulty in temporarily storing all the sounds in the word long enough to spell it on paper. So what you will see on paper with a word like split, it may end up as spit or slit or even silt. These students may also have difficulty quickly naming letters or quickly associating sounds with letters. And of course, that will interfere with decoding. With the insight that the phonological component of language is a deficit, tasks such as generating rhyming words, counting the number of syllables in words, identifying the first sound of a word, or segmenting a word into its sounds are an essential part of interventions for students with dyslexia. With the release of the National Reading Panel report in the year 2000, which stated that phonological and phonemic awareness are important for all students who are learning to read, we're seeing more emphasis on these tasks in the general classroom particularly in kindergarten and first grade. This focus, we hope, will prevent or ameliorate reading problems. So it's important to know, Tina, that, that students with dyslexia won't outgrow their dyslexia. This is not a wait and see situation. Early intervention and the right instruction is critical for these students. Instruction must teach all the structures of language. For example, the sounds in English, the letters, the sentence structure, the text structure. These skills and concepts that are important to reading need to be taught explicitly or direct directly. Um, they need to be taught in a very logical sequence that moves from simple to complex. 
And that instruction needs to be cumulative, which means that new learning is building on prior learning. And this ensures that students really are uh, building a firm foundation and understanding all the skills they need to become better decoders. Mm -hmm. In addition to their being better understanding of dyslexia, there's really more awareness of dyslexia today than there was 30 years ago. 30 years ago, only a small, a very small handful of states had dyslexia laws. Today, the opposite is true. Only a small handful of states do not have dyslexia laws. So the awareness and understanding of dyslexia has definitely and positively changed over the past 30 years. Which is a good thing. Yes. Now, you mentioned coding. Do you want to tell me a little bit about coding? That's, uh, that's, that's an interesting thing. Well, the decoding aspect of reading is being able to look at a word and associate a sound to each letter or letter pattern in a word. Uh, if students learn the patterns and they practice those patterns, those patterns are built in memory. So you, as a skilled reader, can read words without having to look at letters and sounds because those words are built in memory. But for students with dyslexia, they need that explicit instruction of how the letters and sounds go together. They need that practice, practice, practice to build those patterns in memory. So eventually they can read words that are really regular for reading, meaning you can sound them out, but also they'll be better able to hold in memory those words that are irregular words. Think about a word like enough. You can't mm -hmm. really sound it out. You just have to know it. So that decoding aspect is how do you get to the meaning? You have to be able to translate those words into their spoken equivalents so you can get to the meaning of what you're reading. Hmm. Okay. So Leanne, I know that you have personal experience with dyslexia. Um, and how does that impact the way that you teach? You know, having have uh, dyslexia myself and um, not being identified as such until my freshman year of college. Mm. Um, when I go to a lesson and I meet a child for the first time, I can honestly say I understand the fear the shame and the embarrassment of not knowing or not being able to read or know how to read. And with all that, you know, there comes anxiety, you know, like you, you freeze, you put a word in front of, and I know what it likes to sit there and to say, oh my goodness, I just have no idea how I'm going to do this. And everybody's going to know this, this secret about me. As you go on, you know, I when I look at that and I meet that child, the first thing I realize is um, they need to trust me because when I'm going to go in to teach them, I, they're going to reveal their secret that they have no idea how to tackle these words. And um, I have a personal insight to how the dyslexic brain works. And how wonderful is that for the student that you're teaching for them to know, hey, this person has been through exactly what I'm going through. And they understand me completely. 
You know, it took a long time for me to feel comfortable to reveal that. It's, you mm-hmm. know, it's it's something that, you know, you go along because even as an adult, you, there are, you know, individuals in the professional world and in, in life that, you know, they are, you're not a pedigree if you have a learning disability. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, disclosure has been for me. Um, it, it could put you in a very vulnerable um, situation as an adult. So, um, you know, I have chose to do it, you know, um, when I have felt the time is right to do it. I see. Now, what are the best practices, would you say, for teaching students with dyslexia? And why should these practices be universal, do you think? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that. But one thing I would like to... Um, share with, you know, all the teachers who are listening and the parents who may be listening, mm-hmm. is that when you teach, um, teach with compassion for that student, teach with mm-hmm. empathy for that student, and teach with expectations, mm-hmm. and, and have high expectations. And when you go into that teaching, make sure that you remove all the shame and the embarrassment from your lessons. Don't be apologetic for having to teach, you know, a closed syllable or the short vowel sounds or words that only have two sounds in them from the beginning, because that is where they need to begin. And then as a teacher, have expectations for yourself and for your students. Have high expectations. High expectations. I like that. I like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And when you walk in that room, you need to believe that um, your student can learn to read and that you as a teacher have that ability to teach them to read. Because if you don't believe in that student, if you are looking at that standard score of word attack that's in the 70s, or you are a high school teacher and you're still getting a kid in your class and on their individual educational plan, they're still reading at the second grade level, and you think, "My, I'm never going to be able to teach this kid to read. They're never going to learn to read. Then you've already failed before you walked in there. So you need to believe that at any point where they're ready to um, come to that lesson, that you have the ability and that they have the ability um, to learn to read. And that confidence, I think, will inspire uh, success in both teacher and student. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, you do need to use the right tools. Mm -hmm. And there are programs out there um, that are, you know, research-based that you do need to to use. You know, you you have to vet your program and make sure that, as um, Suzanne said, that, um, you know, the the programs are explicit in teaching, you know, Mm -hmm. teach the student why, you know, in the word at, A says a, why in the word eight, A says a, why in the word ago, A says a, why in the word watch, A will say ah, and, um, you know, our language is not necessarily, um, an opaque language, the English language. So um, having all that understanding, and once you give that child that understanding and you teach as, you know, Suzanne said, with the morphology and then the um, phonology and syllable division, syntax, semantics, and 
you have a clear, strong uh, scope and sequence, then you need to look at, as a teacher, um, your frequency, your duration, and your participation are key. Because I can be the best teacher in the world, but if I don't have enough time to teach my lesson, that kid's never going to go anywhere. And if I'm not seeing that child enough, that, that you know, if it, you think about it, a child um, without an a organic, you know, learning disability gets reading every day. And then often we walk into these rooms for CSE meetings and then we barter about, you know, how frequently we're going to teach reading to the dyslexic brain. So frequency is key. Duration is key. And having that child actively participate in the skill level where they need to be is also key. Okay. Now, these are some of the best practices, I would imagine. Is that what we're, we're hearing now? Do you want to tell us why these practices should be universal? You know, when I get a, a child who um, is showing signs of dyslexia, and they may have not been through um, the evaluation process to determine whether they have dyslexia or not, to me as a teacher, it doesn't matter, honestly, because I'm going to start at the same spot where I would start that dyslexic child. But the difference is they're going to move a lot quicker. They're going to um, internalize the why, the explicit instruction, where that child with dyslexia, I may need to present that same concept, that same pattern hundreds, if not thousands of times before they internalize that concept, you know, rapidly and, you know, automatically. Wow. Um, so you want, you definitely want to move the child as quickly as possible once they show mastery. And then you also want to use authentic children's and young adult books as in addition to your, your teaching. They need to interact with not just controlled text, but also authentic um, non-controlled text as well. Mm-hmm. Leanne, um, yes. I'm I'm interested in knowing when you were learning the Wilson program, how did you feel as an individual with dyslexia, knowing that this is instruction that you didn't have as a child with with dyslexia? You know, in a lot of ways, I think about my first. Um, student who I taught the Wilson program to. And, you know, it's just like you always worry about, like, are you, am I the first person the doctor operated on? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I am very um, grateful to that student. But in a lot of ways, I learned with my student. You know, I think I got by in college by, you know, recording for the blind and dyslexic at that point and Mm -hmm. um, listening, you know, having great attendance and going to class and tape recording my classes and listening to them again. Mm -hmm. And I had like a a sight vocabulary, but I probably didn't learn to read until I started to teach my students to read, I would say. And then I started to go Mm -hmm. to professional 
development. So I would say I really taught myself to read. So as you were a teacher, you still were struggling with with reading yourself? I was. You know, I went through my whole um, four years of my undergrad struggling with reading, and then I went on to get my master's in special education, and I definitely struggled with reading. And I did have one reading class in my master's that, you know, talked about decoding, mm-hmm. and um, but it was like, you know, decoding on steroids, um, you know, and then I would have to go to disclose in front of all these professors who'd be like, either believe me or think I was, you know, lying and making this up because I wanted an easy avenue to my, to my education. And I remember at my master's level, I went and I went to this one teacher and she was very well known in, you know, the academic arena for special education. And she says, you're just not trying hard enough. She goes, you know, you really don't have this. And she debated me. And I remember going home and I still have this mentor and a friend I met in my undergraduate, Betsy, and I called her up and I was crying. And I was like, God, this is what she said to me. She's like, Leanne, why are you doing this to yourself? (laughs) You know, know, she just kind of kicked me in the pants like she always Mm -hmm. did. And um, so I understand why it is still, um, you know, quiet and people decide whether they're going to disclose or not disclose or, you know, it took me into my 50s, but I did it. (laughs) Tina, I think something that Leanne and I can attest to is that teachers are not provided information about the teaching that is important to all students, but in particular, those students with dyslexia in their preparation programs. I, I had none when I was in college and I was a special education major. And I was taught this idea that it's a perceptual issue. And so you work on visual perception and auditory perception. Never was it ever talked about as a difficulty with language. And I remember when I, my first year of teaching, I I attended a workshop and I learned the syllable division patterns, which I had never known as a child. I didn't learn those in college as part of my preparation program. And there are four different patterns that we can teach students to help them perceive how to divide longer words. I was so excited. I went into my classroom the next day and taught all four patterns in one day, which is not, <laughs> which is not the way you're supposed to do it. But, but it's such um, an eye opener. It really empowers you as a teacher to help all students learn to read and particularly those students with dyslexia who need that very explicit and systematic instruction. Now, Suzanne, let me ask you this. Now, why do you think it's so important to use tools or programs that are accurate and research proven like Lexia? What risks could arise otherwise? Well, we we do expect for students who are typically developing students 
to gain at least one year's growth in one year's time. Mm -hmm. That's what we call typical growth. But when students are behind or below grade level, as students with dyslexia often are, we're, we're looking at a different kind of growth. We're looking at catch-up growth. If a student is one year behind, one year's growth in one year's time isn't enough growth. They will remain behind and, and they may even fall further behind. So it's critical, for example, for a program to be research proven to accelerate learning so that students really can gain more than one year's growth in one year's time. So that's a really important piece so we can do that catch-up growth and get them where they need to be. Mm-hmm. And we, we know that that catch-up growth is possible through personalized learning. And that's the idea of monitoring progress and helping to, uh, which helps you identify why students are struggling. And then once you know why students are struggling, what's important is responsive instruction that really addresses why the student is struggling. So that's important for educators to look for when they're thinking about a program. Uh, We know the accuracy of data is important. The accuracy of the instructional content is also important. Uh, Leanne mentioned the closed syllable. And I, I just happened to be looking at a curriculum not long ago where the curriculum stated that a syllable that ends in a consonant is a closed syllable and the vowel is short. The examples they gave were cat and car. So both words do end in a consonant. However, although mm-hmm. cat has a short vowel, car does not. And, and what are students going to do with a word like sweet that ends in a consonant, but the vowel sound is not short? So imprecise descriptions of patterns of language may cause more confusion than, than clarity for students. So it's, it is really important to look at tools from that focus of, is it research proven? Uh, is, is the data, uh, if there is data accurate, is the content accurate? Mm-hmm. Now, I know English is a difficult language, very difficult as the examples you've given here. Does dyslexia uh, exist in other languages as prevalent as in English? Uh, that's, that's a very good question. English has the most complex complicated (laughs) orthography of all languages, all languages. Really? And and when they have done studies looking at students learning to read in different orthographies, those orthographies that are transparent or uh, shallow, they're often called, for example, Finnish has an almost perfect one-to-one match between letters and sounds. So 
the prevalence of dyslexia is less than 6%. So that's a big difference. And students learning to read in Finnish will learn to read in less than half a year. Usually they'll learn it in the fall semester. When we look at English, even students who are typically developing readers, they don't have any difficulties, will take two and a half years to gain the same accuracy and fluency as students in Finnish can do in half a year. So, so definitely the orthography of English is another challenge to students with dyslexia. Hmm. Okay. Now I'll just say, I remember an I Love Lucy episode from years ago. She was teaching Ricky Ricardo how to <laughs> love it. <laughs> you remember that episode with yeah. Bao and, and yeah. he, it's a great skit. And I wonder if you might use that in your training. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it is a great skit because it, it shows that complexity. And part yes. of the complexity is a due to the fact that English is a very friendly language. We're always bringing in words from other languages and words from other languages will have different letter sound correspondences. Oh, and sure. in the example of I Love Lucy, many of those words, uh, the, the pronunciations have evolved over the years. So at one time, the pronunciation and the spelling might have matched, but the pronunciations were difficult. So they evolved, but the spelling sort of stayed put. Interesting. All right. Now let's uh, see here. Let's have a final question here for both of you. Now, uh, how has remote hybrid learning affected students with dyslexia? And are there special concerns, challenges, or opportunities for this population of students in a remote environment? Leanne, why don't I start with you? There's, there's probably two sides to that answer, and I'll answer the first from my assistive technology role. Mm -hmm. Probably the best thing that happened with um, the pandemic and the um, infusion of technology on steroids for all students is the universal design for learning. Mm -hmm. There's no more, you know, like, I can't use this, I look different, you know, this accommodation has to be only used in this environment and not in that environment. Mm -hmm. That, you know, everybody can use voice dictation right now for writing, you know, and, and if you can speak, you can write now. So you don't need to worry about the spelling and you can, um, you know, the organization and all the, the parts that take place for writing. You can speak, you can write. You know, ebooks are for everybody right now. Um, there are many screen readers that are available for anybody right now, too. So we're, our students are spending a, an incredible amount of time on the screen, which is, an, you know, in my opinion, the best thing. But they can also use a screen reader. And then there is immersion reading where if they can follow along with those texts as well. And, you know, it doesn't cost anything. It's right there. It's, it's, a, it's a Google extension to have. So the, the best thing that has happened is probably the universal design for learning when it comes to um, technology. Probably the worst thing that has happened is that um, video has trumped print. And, yeah. you know, 
even those students who are not dyslexic, you know, they, they see, but they don't read, they click. And that mm. we're not really processing print. You know, it's everything is expected to be done quickly. And, um, and that's not really a positive thing. So the, the academic endurance that you need and the patience you need to, to read and to have sustained attention is also being lost in this video world. Um, and there are some kids who are thriving with remote instruction, and then there are some kids who are drowning with um, remote instruction. And um, it is a very individual um, you know, situation on those who are doing well and those who are doing poorly. Mm, I see. Now, uh, Suzanne, what about you? Do you have, uh, what do you feel like the concerns, challenges, opportunities for this population of students is in a remote learning environment? Well, of, of course, a grave concern with remote or hybrid learning has been equitable access to technology mm -hmm. and reliable internet connections for all students, in particular those students with dyslexia. And with so many disruptions in moving to a remote learning environment, a concern specific to students with dyslexia is the continuation or the preservation of the interventions. Uh, we don't want it to be seen as just one thing you can put aside. They're, they're very important to include and continue. Uh, remote learning does lack proximity to the teacher, so engagement can be a challenge for some students. Mm -hmm. uh, what we have found with our Lexia programs that use adaptive blended learning, there is adaptive learning online. So as students are learning a new skill and they're struggling, the computer will provide additional instruction. There is accurate and ongoing data for the teachers to monitor progress so they can see when students are really struggling and they need to stop and deliver a teacher-led lesson uh, that will provide targeted instruction for that student. Uh, and, and what we've seen in the pandemic is that educators are seeing that student usage has gone up and the teachers really are accessing the data that are available um, more closely. They're logging in to look at it. So I think that increased usage by students and increased progress monitoring by the teachers is definitely a support for students with dyslexia because they can get um, instruction and practice with dyslexia as well as whatever is part of their intervention. Mm-hmm. And do you want to say a little bit about Lexia in particular? Yes. Um, Lexia provides online learning for students. We have Core 5, which is our program for students in pre-K through 5. And we, we do think about our programs as being programs that accelerate learning for all students. 
Power Up is our program for students who are struggling to learn to read in grades six, six through 12. So again, we want to accelerate their learning by finding their strengths, capitalizing on those. So they may place at a higher level in, uh, Com, uh, in grammar than they do in decoding because that's an area of strength and we want to keep growing that strength. But if they have lower ability in decoding, we want to make sure that we're providing that explicit instruction that will help them with that decoding piece, which is so important to comprehension. So Leanne, can I ask you what you're seeing in terms of classroom instruction? Are you seeing more of what we call structured literacy? Uh, structured literacy is instruction that is informed by what we call the science of reading. The science of reading is all of the evidence that has been accumulated through gold standard methodologies. And structured literacy is really the application of that evidence. So do you see that going on, Leanne, in classrooms? Yes, I, I, I see structured literacy um, and I, I see Lexia as a valuable tool. I always have in um, working with my population of students um, with dyslexia or whatever you want to call it, a reading disability or who are behind in reading. Mm -hmm. um, it is taking, you know, artificial intelligence and it is adapting it so that child can respond quickly to whether you're chaining a word or dividing the word. And it gives them the practice that they need. They need that practice to um, advance. And it does have the ability to integrate, you know, authentic, you know, literature. You know, Power Up does a great job in doing that in the comprehension section. So they're still working on their word study and they can also work on um, comprehension and grammar has been, you know, resurrected as an important part of um, our our studies. So, um, you know, if they 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 participate and if the the lessons are taught with fidelity, and the teacher believes in that student and the student believes that they can learn, mm -hmm. success will be had. Yeah, we, we do think that this blended model that includes the online learning, the data monitoring, and the teacher-led lessons are, are really the equation that leads to equity for all students. Yeah, perfect recipe. It is. You know, there should be no reason why any child is left behind in literacy in this day and age. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, joining us today here on Lexia Talks. Thank you for this opportunity to um, participate and to spread the word. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us this week on Lexia Talks. Make sure to visit our website, lexialearning.com slash podcasts where you can access all of our podcast content. And subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you liked what you heard, 
We'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or if you'd simply tell a friend about the podcast. That would help us out too. Until next time, 